Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. on SFM.
9th of September, happy birthday to my late father as well as his twin brother, RX, who are both my fathers, Ola and Zola. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. 9th of September, we enter September with another horror week, a week from hell, if you will. We've got plenty to discuss. Child safety in South Africa. Have we failed our children? This is especially crucial in the light of Nicholas Minow's confession that he raped a seven-year-old girl at a Dross restaurant here in Pretoria. Of course, we know Natasha was found and Natasha has since passed away. Details for the most part are somewhat sketchy, but nonetheless, we know that we have lost another young flower through the heinous crimes that seem to be gripping our nation. If there's one thing that is positive that is at least coming out of it is the wave of total rejection of the current status of our women in our South African society at the hands of men. Enough is enough it is, but more on that after the break. It's two minutes to go before we have this conversation with Dr. Omar as well as Ms. Jamison. Please stay tuned. Good evening, everybody. They're going to find us, you know? <sighs> Stop exaggerating. We are going to have to pay additional penalties every month, and that's not good for our wallet, hey? Shh, relax. How can I, when you haven't paid your TV license? It's not rocket science, oh. duh. All you have to do is visit tvlic.co.za and pay your TV license. Then I wouldn't be bothering you like this at all. Okay, okay. Do you promise to leave me alone if I pay my TV license? Yes, I'm your conscience trying to get you to do the right thing. Want to keep that voice in your head quiet? Then pay your TV license online anywhere, anytime. It's easy, super fast, and your conscience will thank you. Be kind to yourself. Hashtag made possible by you. Skim, sure. I was cruising on a yacht in Paris, Ibiza. Mm-hmm. Then I drank a bush tea in the bush. Cheese cream bath. Go foster tent. And then shy my white water rafts in Guval River, boy. I am shy. Woman's parts. It's about levels. I was not swimming. With up to 50% off travel deals, never sound like Umashaya. Because Shot Left Travel Week is back. Book directly from shotleft.co.za September 23 to 29. Season C's apply. After all, it's your country. Enjoy it. Because nothing's more fun than a Shot Left. SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songes on SAFM. 9th of September, 12 minutes after the 8th hour of this afternoon, which is now evening. Good evening, everybody. This is Songes Omapete on the SAFM Viewpoint. As if last week was on enough, we enter our second week into September, and it's also another week from hell. This evening, we focus for the first session, the child safety in South Africa. And the question has got to be, have we failed our children? And I cannot think of anybody who would quite confidently say that we have not. Nicholas Minow, confirmed rapist, and now that we know, given that he has pleaded guilty. A mother of four in Bumalanga, Zintlema Ditla, killing four of her children by feeding them rat poison. And it beggars the question... What have we as a nation done? And I would have loved Sabelo to have opened up with that song, but unfortunately, your request came somewhat a little too late and we were not able to necessarily within the time that you had allotted us, so to speak, to play that song. But I suppose it is very crucial that we ask ourselves that question. What is it that is wrong with us as a nation? Last week, we were moaning and groaning and in many other respects just completely rejecting the notion that an Uyinenem Khoyana is one of many, many young women who has been failed. 
by all of society, not least among of society men. And we'll continue the kinds of conversation we had last week and this the new week, only focusing on children with Dr. Shahida Omar, who's a clinical director at the Teddy Bear Clinic for Abused Children, together with the senior researcher at the Children's Institute at UCT, Miss Lucy Jamison. Ladies, good evening. Listeners out there. Let's talk to you first, Dr. Shahida Omar, the Teddy Bear Clinic for Abused Children. We have a problem here, and you know because you receive children who have been failed by the system, who have been failed by their parents, who have been failed by the lawmakers, who have been failed by those within the law to protect them. In every respect, they have been failed. That's why there is a Teddy Bear Clinic for Abused Children. Indeed, I think we have a very serious problem. We are... We are placing immense burden on children. What are we teaching children? We are saying to them, run, yell, and tell. I mean, is that what we are expecting of children when it should be an implicit expectation that they should be protected at all costs? And as a society, not just only as adults or significant others, or a community, but I think as the broader society, it should be an implicit requirement and expectation that children should be protected at all costs. But instead, we are overburdening our children by teaching them how to tell, what to do, and look out for danger at all times. So they are on high alert. If one just looks at the levels of anxieties placed on children and how children manifest these anxieties. We are faced with a nation, uh, you know, children that are living by the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder because maybe not all children may be direct victims of abuse, but many are indirect victims as well and are as deeply affected. And I think this focus even into the family life of how it becomes pervasive of trauma and I think this is where when you say what are we doing as a society to protect our children what have we done and if we look at the different systems law enforcement agencies how are they ensuring the protection safety and security of children and their families certainly not because often when these cases are reported uh, they often shrugged frowned upon dismissed or even sometimes families feel humiliated and there's a strong sense of disbelief that the child is not telling the truth. They're trying to discredit the child's evidence. But if we go beyond that in terms of the National Prosecution's Authority going through to the courts, the prosecutors, they only take on cases where they have a strong probability of a conviction. So many cases are then taken off the road. I think that these are challenges that families and children are being plagued with. And then we also find that as a society, we are becoming desensitized. You know, uh, we all jump up in a fury when we listen to these murders, states of violence, rapes, and then every, every few months, everybody is on high alert and stands and shouts and you know, there's this uproar that enough is enough. And then what happens again? We all sort of retreat into silence. Uh, we all get busy with our work. And somehow this seems to then fade away into the far distance. And I think this seems to be a pattern. But I think we've come to a point now 
where that cannot disappear, it cannot be dismissed, and we as a society need to take action. And, you know, the president saying this is not enough. Enough is not enough. And I think enough is enough, but it's not enough. That's what the message that is out there. And we just find that this violence seems to perpetuate itself where it's now we just look at the numbers. It's going into thousands. And that is not acceptable. And it says a lot about us as a society in terms of the rights of children and in terms of the responsibilities that we have towards our children in protecting them, ensuring their safety, and ensuring that a child actually lives the life of a child, gets an opportunity to play and to enjoy and to grow in safety and harmony, and that's not happening. It's definitely not happening. I mean, when we're focusing on just two instances today that have come to the limelight, limelight in the context of now we know for a fact that their mother, Zintlema Ditle murdered four of her children. We know for a fact that now a Nicholas Nino would have raped a seven-year-old at a restaurant. I mean, these spaces that these children have been vulnerable to murder and rape respectively have been what you would honestly say being the safest of places at home in the care of their mother. You would think that going to a restaurant becomes a leisurely affair that everybody should embrace and especially these chain stores and these franchises, they make it convenient for the entire family to be there. You find elderly persons there, you find children, they're all in the same space, even kiddies' play areas. Now when this happens, the system and its polity more importantly is an absolute favour. And I want us to focus on the rights of children in the constitutional framework, in the Children's Act, and in all of the policies that are established from a social development perspective to health to to education, the interests of children. Ms. Lucy Jamison, I'm going to come to you after the ad break that we have to take now 20 past. But for the record, we're in conversation with Dr. Shaida Omar, the clinical director at Teddy Bear Clinic, and Ms. Lucy Jamison, senior researcher at the Children's Institute at UCT. Ms. Lucy Jamison follows after the break. These are the clues to the competition. What excites him about the country at the moment? Well, um, I think he's, um, he says in his speeches sometimes that uh, we are going to have a tintillating society in South Africa. It's a tintillating society. It's just waiting to happen. Keep listening to SAFM for the question. Call Songhez or now 0891-104-207. Please do call if you wish to participate. Child safety in South Africa, have we failed our children? That's the question that we are asking and in conversation with us this evening is Dr. Shahida Omar, Teddy Bay Clinic's clinical director. 891 is the number to dial. Ms. Lucy Jamison, let's talk about the legal framework that pertains to children so that we truly understand where we are going wrong, given the fact that at least in institutionally the tools at law are available for us to really impress the notion that children matter? So we've got a fantastic legal framework, one that's lauded across the globe as being really progressive in terms of children's rights and particularly children's rights to protection. The problem is it isn't implemented. So we don't have enough money for social workers. We don't have enough child and youth care workers in communities, in schools, and even 
when, as, as Dr. Omar was saying, the child protection system kicks in, often magistrates see themselves as above the law and people aren't getting the minimum sentences that are prescribed. So it's a failure in terms of the resources that are given. There's a failure in terms of the knowledge of what the law says. And there's a failure to implement it. And and that's really quite complicated because it's about social norms and values. And we have, despite everything that you will hear about people saying that children are precious and they come first, the reality is that often even within families, you know, people protect the perpetrators and they will not go to the police and not report a case where a family member has raped a child because the perpetrator is more important to them than the child. This happens every day we see these kind of cases. And of course, the, the, the case um, today has shown that it's not just men. You know, across the country, people have been organizing campaigns and asking men to have, hang their heads in shame. But women are also part of this web of violence that we've seen because it's been normalized across society. Let's talk about the normalization across society. I mean, this normalization is probably because the institutions and the government establishments, the government institutions and the framework that is supposed to implement, if you will, this legislative regime that you laud as being accepted the world over as one of the better ones out there. When you talk about social development, you talk about, especially in the context of social workers, being in scant and scarce supply such that they cannot support the social development outcomes that are required by the legal framework that's out there. And I'm just going to mention two other departments because, I mean, these are are critical. When you talk about health, primary health care in South Africa and its outcomes are not comparable to the rest of the world, certainly as it pertains to how much is spent versus the returns, if you will. And when you talk about the high infant mortality that we are facing in South Africa or even the conditions that become permanent because of mal medical malpractice. I mean, two weeks ago we had a young couple who were dealing with a child who's got severe brain damage given the fact that he was not attended to properly at childbirth. You talk about education. The Michael Gomanes of the world who lose their lives by going to the toilet. Something as natural as that. When you've got such a an integrated system failing at every possible turn, can we really lord this legal framework that has got the results that it has that allow us to ask this question? Have we failed our children? I'd like a response on that, please, Dr. Shaida Omar. Okay. Um, so, as, as Lucy, my learned colleague, uh, alluded to the fact that we have, like, you know, the best pieces of legislation. Unfortunately, the resources are not sufficiently allocated because there aren't budgets that are made available and people are overworking. If we look in, in terms of child welfare and social development, the caseloads are enormously high per uh, professional, per social worker, child and youth care worker. And, and the reality is that there isn't an, a rollout of qualitative work, the quality uh, control as well, because if one case, many, uh, case worker has to see 30 to 60 cho- uh, children or cases a month. How practical is it that there's going to be a proper follow-up in terms of linkage to care and support? But you've highlighted a few things which I think we need to focus on. The first thousand days, 
uh, of a child. And I think we're looking at, you mentioned healthcare services, so antenatal facilities, and what kind of services and support and interventions are actually provided at that initial point for the young mother-to-be. I think those are such opportunities that one could address and implement uh, support at that phase to ensure that there would not be a potential for later risk or abuse. Because often we find that mothers are not actually aware in terms of uh, nourishment, the proper nutrition, and there there are studies that are actually confirming the lack of adequate nutrition from the prenatal phase, even uh, later on in the first thousand days, how it could actually relate to stress and violence. So in the earlier years, it could be externalizing behavior, which could then be, you know, follow on to oppositional defiant behavior, uh, conduct disorder. But, you know, these are all studies that have been conducted looking at the relationship between uh, the food insecurity, the malnourishment, and later stress in life and how that could contribute to violence. So the, the uh, role of health, what role is it playing? It's certainly failing our children. It's failing our families. Actually, it, the system has disintegrated. But if we look at education as well, just look at the earlier uh, uh, phases, you're talking about your your preschoolers uh, where the ECD practitioners are not equipped, they're not enabled to identify children who are in need of care, children who are at risk, children who are actually suffering, who are actually victims of violence and, and trauma. I think, you know, because they don't know better, they've never been given the opportunity to be trained or how to manage and where to refer and report and as a result we are seeing many children many uh, little ones your two-year-olds three-year-olds who are falling through the cracks and then if we just go further on in terms of uh, primary school senior primary and high school uh, the recent state of violence where young 14 year olds mindless killing but it's a game that the uh, educators there are lots of protocols in place uh, I mean, again, that speaks to legislation and policy frameworks all day. But when you speak to educators, many of them on the ground are actually not even aware of what to do, how to do, where to report. They, and, and often when children come forward, besides the bullying, but if they come forward with disclosures, we find that heads of schools, HODs, often turn it away or shrug it under the carpet. We've got a classic case of the Parktown Boys case, and we, there are many other schools, Orlando, uh, the A.B. Huma School in Orlando, uh, where 86 learners were victims of sexual violence by the scholar patroller. And if we just look at that trajectory of the whole case, I mean, that in itself is a discussion that we could continue with, but at different phases, uh, the way it was received, the disclosures, followed by, um, you know, rapid risk assessment. And then followed by interventions. Let me cut you uh, there. Let me cut you there because I need to ask this follow-up question based on what you have said. Because as I'm listening to you, the problem is not children. And it can never be interpreted to be the children in society are the problem. Lucy, to the extent that you can tell from a research perspective, do we have a grip as a society, as a nation, on 
the status of mental health in our adult population from teachers, from social workers, from new moms even. My producer just asked me to ask this question specifically as it pertains to postnatal depression. This is a condition which unfortunately does become and beget new mothers. To that extent, do we have from a clinical perspective an understanding of the real challenges for whatever they may come from such that they lend themselves to the statistics that we are now lamenting as it pertains to child neglect and abuse? So mental health and trauma is a huge issue in South African society. You mentioned postnatal depression. We know that about one in four women experience postnatal depression, but there are rarely any services that are available to women. And actually, a lot of mental health conditions that appear in adulthood actually start in childhood. And there are virtually no services accessible to children. I work at UCT on the Red Cross campus. We have a specialist unit there for dealing with mental illness in children. We see 30 patients a year. We have huge need in this country. One in three children experiencing sexual abuse by the time they reach 18, that carries with it trauma. It means it interrupts their ability to care for children. So not is it just the postnatal depression that's induced by hormones, but their own baggage of mental illness and trauma from their own childhood that interrupts that bonding and ability to care for and protect children into the future. And that is essential. But it's also a reason for hope because we do know what is necessary to build those bonds. And it's bonds between mother and infant and father and infant. And we know how to, you know, successful schemes and and programs that are running across the country are showing how powerful effects that can be on the physical, mental health of children and their long-term outcomes. I mean, you talk about the safety of children. Just, what, a couple of weeks ago, and fortunately, the story could have been very different, and it isn't. Emily de Jocha, abducted by her teacher from school. And there are countless instances. I mean, you mentioned the statistic. One in three children will, in, will be sexually abused by the time they're 18. In other words, a third of all our adults become these statistics. And of course, it lends itself to the fact that we've got such high sex offences in this country because children from a young age are exposed to this, they are abused, and somehow the trauma that is there is not dealt with appropriately and it replicates itself in now being the child is father of the man, being a sex offender later on in adult life. Lucy? Yes, I mean, this is, it's, it's a huge problem in that we have definitely, you know, research has has clearly established that there is a risk, that um, a greater risk for both children who have experienced um, violence and abuse in childhood, more of a risk for women putting up with and tolerating violence and more of a risk for boys to perpetrate violence into adulthood and very few services to break that cycle. But the opposite is also something that we need to look at and we need to be very careful 
about the messages that we give to young men and women and, and girls and boys, that just because you have experienced sexual violence doesn't mean to say that you are going to put up with this for the rest of your life, nor does it mean that because you've been abused as a boy, and that is something that we don't talk about enough in South African society, is how often boys are sexually abused. But those boys who've been abused, it isn't a dead cert that they will go on to become abusers. The risk is higher, but most boys who are sexually abused don't go on to become rapists. And we have to, you know, we have to make sure that boys can come forward without thinking, I'm going to be labelled, that they can also see that they can get the support and services they need to deal with their own trauma. And that it's a huge, we are a wounded nation. South Africa has high levels of violence in the community, in the homes, but a historical legacy from apartheid right back into colonialism that is with each and every single South African that permeates society and the relationship. But the good news is that you know South Africans are also you know able to forgive each other and that we're able to establish bonds and overcome those challenges. So it's really, really important that your listeners don't think that this picture is the end of the story. These challenges are surmountable. We can have programs. We have community-based programs that are working across the complexity of all these interwoven challenges that are showing really great results in reducing violence against women, Mm, children, mm. and against men. Let's talk about some interventions. In the last week especially, we've been talking a lot about the registry for sex offenders there, Dr. Shaida Omar. What is the view of Teddy Bear Clinic in terms of the value of this and especially the president's call of making it public because as we know right now it's a document that is the province of the ministry of police to the extent that it is updated if at all one will never know because it is something which is kept under wraps for the most part and those persons who like for instance a luanda Bota and many others who are like him who fit that profile should be known readily for potential employers and for that matter for society because these are the um persona non grata who we shouldn't be interacting and interfacing with on a day-to-day basis. Do you have a position, therefore, on the registry for sex offenders and whether or not it should be made public as has been called for by the president? Well, I mean, I think if it's made public, it has to be managed appropriately and adequately because I think we have to realize that these people that are on the register have their own family lives, that there may be children involved and we have to look at the best interests of the child. However, I think it is important that people out in the community are able to ensure the safety and protection of their children, but the register would also prevent uh, a potential uh, perpetrator to be employed in a situation. So, because very often, I think if we just look at this uh, case in Cape Town, in in any of the the post office man, where he, he was convicted and had a a few criminal offenses. So that kind of situation could certainly be avoided. I think that would certainly provide more safety, more security, and for people to be able to access where they, you know, where they're living or uh, ensuring that their children will not be falling, falling prey to perpetrators like that. So I think we do take a strong stand 
that it's important to have that information, but it has to be managed at the same time because we don't want to have uh, you know, a war out there in a war zone where people in the community start taking the law into their own hands as well. So if the perpetrator is brought to book, held accountable, faces, uh, uh, you know, is actually charged, convicted, etc. I think if those uh, processes and procedures are rigorous and uh, followed through thoroughly, we will not find that that, that people out there would be, uh, you know, out to, to, to kill or to take the law into their own hands. I'm asking about the sex registry. So in other words, you do not want it to be made public. Uh, no, no, no. We would like it to be made public. I think, sorry if I didn't make myself clear, but it's also very clear that people, uh, that the law should ensure that that person say that actions have consequences and faces whatever he has committed, uh, you know, unlawfully actually faces uh, the consequences thereof. Because I think what I'm really trying to probe is what deterrent measure it will have, knowing that as a sex offender that by and large the nation will have access to my name, the kind of offense or offenses that I have committed, and certainly my chances to engage society like a normal human being will be seriously compromised by that singular action or by those many actions that have the effect of abusing persons old and young alike, but especially children in the context of Section 28.2, best interests of the child, that I be, to the extent possible, be ostracized from society because that is the decision I have taken for myself. Therefore, that's the consequence that bears following. Indeed, and I think I fully agree with that, that actions should have consequences. And that person, having committed the most heinous crime and being responsible for that, should, should face that. And I mean, that is... Certainly, I would think a strong deterrent that would protect people or prevent other potential offenders from committing crimes of this nature. No, granted, thank you so much for your response. Let's take a quick ad break. We are in conversation with Dr. Shahida Omar, who is the clinical director at the Teddy Bear Clinic for Abused Children, together with the senior researcher at the Children's Institute at UCT, Ms. Lucy Jamison. We've got five minutes left with them. 891 Please stay tuned. Are you a grade 12 learner getting ready for matric exams? Remember that SABC Education Virtual Academy, SIVA, is here for you to help you on your matric journey. SIVA offers online support for matric learners enrolled in math, science, accounting, life sciences, accounting, and English. Visit www.siva.co.za for more information. With SIVA, you are never alone. A proud initiative by SABC Education. SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. With all the promises that have been made, I'll come to you, Ms. Lucy Jamison, Senior Researcher at the Children's Institute at UCT. For those who have just joined us, welcome. We're talking about child safety in South Africa. What is our biggest institutional stumbling block? That's number one. Number two, if things need to change, Who, and I'm specific about this question, who, which office needs to do what at a provincial level, at a local government level, at a national level? Because clearly now we need decisive action and we almost need to apportion an activity to a particular office or individual, given the fact that for so long as we are in the situation without key deliverables being apportioned for somebody to be accountable for, the statistic or these statistics 
we might be talking about them a year from now, a decade from now? It isn't one person or one department. As we've heard throughout the debate on this show, it is across the board. So the police have to stop turning away cases that are reported of sexual abuse. Prosecutors have to prosecute them and magistrates or judges have to hand down the appropriate sentences as per law. That's on the criminal justice side. But we've also, more importantly, got to try and stop violence from happening in our communities. And that's the responsibility of the Department of Health, as you said, in terms of dealing with um, pregnant women. There was a community-based study in KwaZulu-Natal that found that 40% of pregnant women experienced violence whilst they were pregnant and 20% experienced rape or sexual violence whilst pregnant. Those are cases that we need to be screening for in our health system. Our social development department, we need more social workers. We need more child and youth care workers. We need an improved education system. Corporal punishment in schools was outlawed 20 years ago. People need to learn what the alternatives are and stop tolerating violence in our homes, in our communities, and in the services we provide. It is not for one person. It's for each and every single one of us as parents, as practitioners, as government. We all have to take a stand. Sure. Let's take some quick calls from Velkom and Bulugwana, respectively, in Johnson and Kutso. Gentlemen, thank you so much for calling us, but unfortunately you've left it somewhat late, and I'm going to have to truncate your time. 30 seconds, please. Make it crisp. Johnson. Hello, hello. Sorry. I just short, I'm sure it's not going to be very, very much fruitful. I think we have outdid ourselves in our constitution. We, I don't think we've got correct constitution uh, to facilitate change in our own country. I know it is admired everywhere, but we have not the facility translated for benefit for all of us. Very well. Thank you so much. Pardon? <laughs> no, no, I appreciate that. I think I got the crisp point. The Constitution doesn't allow us to make the meaningful changes that are required in the society that we live in. Appreciate your comments. Thank you so much there, Johnson, calling us from Velcom. Let's go to Kutso in Bulugwan. Hey, so good. Let's make it quick, please, Kutso. Oh, okay, um, I'm not so good, but I think maybe I will call some other time, so I'm not going to be able to put it very short. So. Or- all right, no, we appreciate nonetheless for calling. L- let's have a response to that call then to you, Ms. Um, Dr. Shaida Omar. Let's talk about the constitutional framework because, I mean, this is an affront to the constitution given the fact that we have this constitution which is lauded the world over, as Johnson says, but when you talk about the statistics that we're lamenting now, there's a clear discord. Indeed, there is a clear discord. And again, I think what my colleague Lucy said earlier on, we have the best uh, pieces of legislation. The constitution is highly lauded on paper, theoretically, it's absolutely brilliant, but it's actually the implementation and the allocation of resources, the budgets and human resources, all of that, one needs to factor all of that into the constitutional rights being exercised and executed properly and adequately on the ground, and that's not happening because there are fundamental flaws in terms of the resources and uh, opportunities created for it to be successful. 
Thank you so much. We appreciate your comments there, Dr. Shaida Uma, Clinical Director at the Teddy Bear Clinic. Final question to you, Ms. Lucy Jamison. Let me just ask, from an advocacy perspective, what has your research shown or what through your research have you uncovered? And I always like to ask this question. What are the low-hanging fruits that we have at our disposal almost readily that can at least go a long way in changing this this framework that we are living in, this quagmire that we find ourselves in as it pertains to child abuse and neglect? There aren't any low in terms of something as complicated as, you know, the saturation of violence in society. It is a complex problem that requires complex solutions. And as your caller said, you know, poverty, failed opportunity are some of the things that drive violence. This has got to start, though, with each and every one of us saying absolutely no, zero tolerance to violence. And for us, one of the things that we advocate to underline that is that we need to stop being violent towards the youngest in society and stop hitting children. That's the starting point. It's not a low-hanging fruit. That's a complicated and difficult ask. People have to learn how to discipline children in a different way. We have to give parents support so that they have enough resources coming into the household to reduce the stress. So it's not a low-hanging fruit. It's not easy, but that's the starting point. You will most certainly have difficulty trying to convince parents that they cannot discipline their own children in a manner that they believe is best going to make sure they are raised properly. But nonetheless, thank you so much for your thoughts. Ms. Lucy Jamison, Senior Researcher, Children's Institute at UCT. Let's take a quick ad break before we are joined by Ms. Linda Luangumalo, Women's Rights Program Manager at Action Aid Africa, to talk about hashtag Santon Shutdown. Is GBV... None of corporate South Africa's business? That's the question we're asking. Of course, there's an answer to that. Let's have it in the next 10, 15 minutes.